I'm Dr. Liz Wayne. And I'm Dr. Zain Yao. And you are listening to the PhD Biz Podcast. And we're a podcast about academia, culture, and social justice across the STEM humanities divide. And a bunch of other things, like today we're going to be continuing our conversation about conferences. Mm-hmm. As you know, last week we had an awesome episode about Liz's amazing experience as being as a TED mm-hmm. fellow, giving a TED talk at the annual TED conference. It was great. It was great. Yes. But, but the, it's not the most relatable thing for most of us. <laughs> not at all. Yeah, I'm probably never going to go, uh, besides going to another TED conference, I doubt there's any other experience like it. Mm-hmm. So we decided to do this uh, week's episode on something more relatable, which is about academic conferences. And the way they're like icebergs, there's, you know, some of it's on the surface, and that's very important, but there's also the whole hidden dynamic of the life of conferences that we really wanted to dig into. Yeah, and I think one of the one of the analogies we used was the tipping of the iceberg, right? Mm-hmm. Looking at trying to help our listeners understand that all the things that we've learned from the tens of conferences that we got, we have all gone to, and trying to figure out how we can give you tools that can best help you as you go along your conference experience. Uh-huh. And the more cheesy comparison being to Mean Girls, not that they're <laughs> Mean Girls, but likewise, like sure, when we, sure. the first time you start, go to your first conference, it's like, you know, going to a new school and you have to sp- figure out what the dynamics are and sort of map mm-hmm. them out and see what the cliques are. And, you know, by the ends, as, I, as Liz jokingly said at one point, like, we'll try to teach you how to be prom queen. Yeah. Navigate the maze, get the guy, become the prom queen. Oh, yes. And the whole school. Yeah. Also, like, Actually, I don't even remember what happened in Mean Girls. I'm not going to lie. I just remember this quintessential picture. But I don't know if I've actually seen the whole thing. Oh, really? Probably not. I was going to say, because I, 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 I also want to make a joke. Like, uh, there's this iconic scene near the beginning where they talk about the different social groups. And they're like, you got your mm-hmm. cool Asians. You got your unfriendly black hotties. That was not me in high school. <laughs> okay, people don't know that. For all they know, we're, you know, we are the cool Asian and the, the black hottie. <laughs> the unfriendly black hottie. Yeah, the Liz unfriendly. is very friendly. Mm. Anyway, we hope you enjoy this episode. Yeah, stay tuned. Okay. okay. I wanted this to be, again, an episode where we talk about academic conferences in general, uh, tips, I think the the hidden culture of conferences, which is a big thing, especially for junior scholars, and yeah, especially the differences between STEM and the humanities. I One of my friends likes to joke that like the funny thing about conferences is that usually because it's a bunch of academics, like it's usually a bunch of like socially awkward introverts trying to be social around <laughs> each other. Wow. Wait, is that real? What do you mean? Like, like I feel like... The, uh, like I, definitely, I think that contributes to like part of the awkwardness or perhaps like the special subculture that is the academic conference. Um, mm. But anyway, yeah, Liz, what, Liz and I wanted to sort of like divide it up into two sections. On the one hand, there's like the obvious stuff that conferences are about. And then we want to do the under the hood, the, you know, the 90% <laughs> of the iceberg is under the water stuff. Oh, yeah. Uh, about yeah, the things so that true. we picked up over the years. Yeah. And then... Um... As we've been talking, there have been some differences that we've noticed in how the humanities conferences and STEM. So we'll try to make those distinctions. There are a lot of things that will be relevant for everybody, but then, you know, we'll make distinctions where they're necessary. Mm -hmm. 
But so, yeah, Zion, which conferences do you do? Um, and you've so just been that, to a few. Yeah, this has been a big conference. This I'll be doing four conferences this year. Uh, the way that I think, and the, well, the humanities is a good way to, to break down is like, on the one hand, it's usually like the major field organization that is for like, say, literature blank or music or history. And those are like the really big conferences. Mm -hmm. um, on the one hand, like, I feel like you, for us, like you usually don't make it as a presenter on those conferences until a little bit further on in like your PhD um, because it's so competitive. At the same time, because it's so large, on the one hand, while you're going to be hearing like probably some of the most important research will be coming out in the next year, it's not as specialized. So for me, on the one hand is the Modern Language Association, but then, for example, the Society of Early Americanists or um, the uh, Conference for 19th Century Americanists, which is more specific to my field. And then in some of my other fields, for example, um, I'm going to be going to the American Studies Association for people who do American studies. And I also went for the first time to the Asian American um, Studies Association, which is mm. also a fantastic experience. So I think it's also very clarifying. I th on the one hand, there's these general conferences, like the big field conferences. There's also like larger field conferences, like there's regional MLAs. But then like there's a lot of value to be had from once you're able to clearly articulate to yourself what your various subfields are and being able to go there because then you can get much more specific updates and make much more specific connections that are going to be more directly relevant to your research. Hmm. Yeah. How many conferences do people usually do a year in your field, Liz? Depends. Mm -hmm. I, that's such a stupid answer. But I think people would try to go to at least one a year. If you are... If you just had a paper that came out, you may go to more than one. If you are a faculty or higher up, you will obviously go to more than one because then part of your job is to promote your lab and to promote your research. So you're going to more than one. So it depends on like what um, what stage of your career you're in. Some people have some advisors will say, "I don't want you to go to a conference until you've." your paper is almost ready to be published because they don't want you to present your information and then have it be incomplete or be scooped. Mm, I could see that. Yeah. Um, and then, so then you might, and then you might go to a few of them actually all in one year. But I think once, at least once a year is enough to maintain like some form of social capital in the field. And mm. then the, conf the the conference that you will go to. So, I think people will have like their maybe a one conference they like to go to. Like I'm a chemist. If someone says they're a chemist, it's the one that all the chemists go to. Um, and then they'll have other ones they do for just networking purposes that are mm -hmm. kind of outside their field, but good for networking. And if, if you're trying to branch into that field, I, um, um, I'm going, Oh, and then another thing is the size of the conference. So some of them are like the mega everyone goes yes. this is our field conference. Mm -hmm. But then you have those smaller conferences that are actually quite powerful because mm -hmm. the small conference well quality is going to be the same. Yeah, but, true, but like I guess more specific um it'd be more relevant, pertinent to your work. So what I was going to say was that um if they numb it, it's going to be like 60 or 70 people. So it's actually a really great opportunity to meet people in the field. Like it's fantastic for networking because the, the number of people there are so small. And it's good for conversations. 
And that's actually how you get like the insider information to advancement, to finding about, about job opportunities, getting postdocs, just getting into the in crowd. And it's, so getting into that sphere is actually like where you want to be. It's how you kind of find, or even how the big players in the field get defined themselves. So how mm -hmm. they get defined and then how you find them. And, um, would you, you know, like if you can't go, Oh, sorry. I was going to say, would you recommend that people start then with smaller conferences and then go to the big field ones? Or do you feel like there's, like you should alternate? You should have a body of work first to build mm -hmm. on and then go to all, both of them. Yeah. Because they're doing different things for you. Mm -hmm. You're there. They are doing different things for you, but I, from, other people that I've heard, it's better to, to not, as an example, you wouldn't want to be a first year graduate student and then go to a Gordon or a Keystone because you don't know what you're doing yet and all your conversations will be meaningless for you, mm. for your future. Whereas like if you have a paper, or, like you kind of understand more things are going, the conversations will be more useful for you and like having that smaller intimate relationship will actually get you somewhere. But small conferences are amazing, and they really, it's a great way, to, if you don't know about the field, to learn, because then you have people there, and every conference, every meeting is going to tell you something insightful. Yeah. But, I was gonna but. Say, oh, sorry. I was going to say, like, um, so from from my experience, uh, in the humanities, like, there, there's less worry about being scooped, so I feel like um, going to conferences on a regular basis from the beginning is probably more the norm. I, I usually try to recommend to people not to go to conferences unless you're presenting. That being said, I know that other junior people have had really good experiences of just being an attendee at a conference. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I feel like you have to measure it at all the fact, like if it's like nearby and you could keep your costs low, other than like the, the entrance fee, then it makes sense. Because sometimes you can go with your, if your advisor or other more, uh, advanced uh, colleagues of yours would be going then it is you could start to lay the groundwork for for networking but also feeling comfortable in that space but that's also up to you also uh, sorry i to i realized i should have added a caveat i've just been doing a lot of conferences this year because i'm trying to gear up for the academic job market but i'd really say like again in my field it's probably the norm to do one or two a year and i try to usually recommend to the people i'm mentoring to apply to two a year so that if you don't make um so if you don't get accepted to one and then hopefully you get into the other one and then you could see if you can get funding to go to both if you mm -hmm. manage to get accepted to both mm -hmm. yeah sorry and how does, how does this work? So I, when I apply to conferences, you can submit a poster. Basically, we just put all of our signs on like a four by, a three by four foot board. And we take our poster and people can walk around and look at our poster and ask us questions about our research. Or you get selected to do a talk. Mm -hmm. And that can be, that can be um, like 10 minutes. And most like junior people get like maybe 10 minutes and then they have main seminar talks, which can be like 30 minutes or something like that. Mm. Is there a difference in, is there oh, a difference is, in what? Uh, in prestige or value between the different ones or does it really not matter? It's just different format. Um, there is, you would not expect a professor to give a poster. Some have though. Okay. But that's very infrequent. So mostly, like, 
students and postdocs are giving these posters. And being selected for a talk is a pretty, like that's a sign that your research might have a broader appeal to people. If you get bumped up from the t poster to the talk. And then the larger seminar, like the 30 minutes, those are already like well pre-selected and kind of, you know, you also start playing this game of who you know because whoever's organizing the conference may have people in mind for this particular session mm -hmm, that they want to mm -hmm. host. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's definitely different in the humanities. So for us, it's just the delivering the paper. Like the standard format is the panel, um, usually about three to four people is the standard uh, amount on the panel. Maybe there'll be a respondent. The length of the paper is probably a little bit under 15 minutes per person. Three, the, mm -hmm. the, all people present and then there's Q&A afterwards. We also have round tables, which is a discussion. Usually people like have very brief overviews of what uh, their presentation is and then they end up, and then a moderator facil facilitates a discussion. For the very senior scholars, they would be invited to maybe do a plenary. Maybe there might be one plenary a day or they'll be the keynote speaker for the conference. Um, so for that, that's how our hierarchy shakes up. Mm. Uh, and, but definitely how you mentioned like for seminars, uh, I feel like that's more the case in uh, the field conferences I've seen. Like for example, the 19th century Americanists, like because it's so hard for junior scholars to get, to get in, they've figured that one way to make it more inclusive is to run seminars where people present papers beforehand and they have it uh, run on a theme by a really famous senior person. So on the one hand, people get to workshop things, but also it allows greater participation for junior people who would find it hard to be to end up presenting. Hmm. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. So I, I do. Yeah, I, I'm just thinking about how, um, you know, when you start talking for 30 minutes, you have to have 30 minutes of material and that often becomes a limiting factor and why PI professors end up doing those talks more often because they have 30 minutes worth of material to do, oh. which means, so they're culminating like multiple papers, whereas like a graduate student may have only one paper as an example. Um, but there are times where if you are like a junior investigator who does have a lot of papers and you know the right people, you, you can get on that platform and that can be pretty impressive to help you mm. get started in your career to have everyone see you do the work. But again, you also have to have a lot of material to talk about and that can be the limiting factor in how long. So the people who get like, like let's say like a, a, a dinner talk or a lunch talk, like they're the lunch plenary session speaker tend to be older because they have more, their program is more established. There's a beginning and mm -hmm. an end, ending to their story. Whereas even right now, I have excitement and potential. That's what I can sell you because I haven't really, um, I'm, there's still avenues I have to pursue. Whereas someone who's got like five or even 10 years of experience, they have like, and like multiple students to work under them, they can pull all those those narratives together to create a beautiful story for you. And actually, oh. that's a really interesting thinking now as a speaker, thinking um, about like how that works. It, it's like a different level of how to piece together all these narratives to make a really interesting talk. Mm -hmm. and that's actually really interesting because that comes to another big difference, of course, between STEM and the humanities. Like you were talking about like the content and having enough content because you, you know, you need your results. But for us, um, of course, because any paper is in itself an argument, mm -hmm. 
like of course like quality still matters a lot and like the impact of the argument still matters a lot but that being said like i think it's sort of a struggle for even junior scholars to make, make sure that you whittle down um your paper to the 15 minutes like i think mm -hmm. that like uh, for plenary sessions is typical for an hour-long talk um but then it's also because like the way that our research works and the way that like we don't like the way that we don't focus on results and so much as like argument and research in a different capacity. So mm -hmm. we don't like that. Yeah. The length of time isn't necessarily the constraint in the same way it is because yeah, our standards are different. Yeah. That's kind of interesting. Yeah. yeah. Let's see. Very, very are there any, interesting. any other obvious things that we should touch on before we go to the exciting invisible things? Mm, let's go on. Let's go to the iceberg. Let's go. To, let's do the Titanic here. Yeah, we're going to dive underneath. <laughs> so I feel like we just talked about or sort of the, the obvious parts of conferences that you could probably pick up by reading any how-to. Um, but now we want to sort of delve into the things that you really sort of just pick that can be really disorienting, especially the first time you go to conferences, even for the first few years as a junior um, academic, because there's all these sort of hidden aspects to networking and hierarchy and costs. Um, that I don't think get discussed overtly very often. No, I, I don't think they do. And you end up having to rely on the people around you to disseminate that information to you. And that can, that's problematic in itself and probably creating more inequality in the system. Yeah. Oh, definitely. Cause it's like, which schools have, I don't know, sort of like, like, I guess this is in conferences. That's really when, institutional power becomes apparent because you could see what sort of generations of networking is established mm. between like alumni from a particular university that you as a junior will naturally more naturally get associated yeah, with because so, your advisor mm -hmm. yeah yeah um, so it's like we should be discussing the superstardom in academia this idea yes. that there are hot there are big shots and part of going to conferences is actually understanding the ecosystem that you're in and learning mm -hmm. who's who and how to fit into that structure. And I think it's really intimidating when you're a younger scientist um, because you don't know anyone yet. So you don't have any capital to really trade on yet because you just got there. So I'm thinking about like when I was a, like the first time I went to a conference, I didn't know anyone. Of course, the second time I go, all the people I networked with before are there and I know people. And so now I, all of a sudden I have, I know what to do at breaks. I know what to do for dinner. Cause I'm like, let's go to dinner together. Let's do this. Let's do this. And you start to mm -hmm. learn people. And then you read the papers and you're like, Oh, that's that person. And you can ask for introductions. And so the more you go, the more you can build up, but how easy that access gets also depends on who you already know. And that's mm -hmm. not something you would know from just your very first conference. Uh -huh. Unless you have institutional privilege. Um, yeah. Which, of course, is something that people don't discuss very much. I, I like when you talk so about you... the meals thing. Oh, sorry, yeah. about the meals thing, because I do feel like, um, like, if you don't know people, there's sort of this feeling like, okay, I guess I'll eat by myself. Like, you know, being the kid in high school, like the mm -hmm. cliche from the teen movie, like, you're going to just eat in the washroom in a, in a bathroom stall. <laughs> like, it does sort of feel like that because I feel like conferences are also, as you said, like in its own social ecology and its own hierarchy. Um, to go to the topic of superstardom, this is something that uh, Liz and I sort of saw as a bit of a difference between the humanities and STEM, which is, of course, we, we on the obvious section, we talked about how you could tell who the senior scholars are, et cetera, because they're giving the plenaries or the keynotes. But in the humanities, one thing I think is odd is like 
on the one hand, like as an academic in general, you're not supposed to really exist as a body. Like you exist as a name because like your name appears on your publications and that's how it circulates. But at the same time, same time, like it's once you're in the know that you're, that people are able to recognize who that senior scholar is. So it's like this sort of recognition that builds up like, oh, you know who that senior scholar is because it shows that you've had access to the fact that you were able to meet them before, you've been able to go to conferences before. But as a junior scholar, you're, you're going to be walking around and be like, I didn't know that I just rubbed shoulders with this iconic person. Mm. Um, hmm. Like it becomes this weird thing where on the one hand, even though it's not something that people talk about, you're it's sort of expected in this invisible way that you're supposed to know who Judith Butler is supposed to look like at a certain point. Like hmm. it'd be sort of funny that like, Google image search or checking people's faculty pages becomes a sort of unspoken aspect of being able to recognize uh, people around you. So you can, you know, show how much more literate you are in terms of the the social ecology and professional ecology of what your discipline is. Hmm. Yeah. I, that's interesting because I think scientists put a lot of, at least the nowadays, nowadays scientists put a lot of emphasis on kind of branding their lab because if you think about it we're in this field and a lot of people could be doing something very similar to us and so it becomes a question not only of who does it first but also who does it best and mm -hmm. so you're trying to make your thing memorable and in a way you're trying to make the way that you describe this system, the way it gets described in the history text, in the science textbooks and the way it gets translated to medicine. You know, trail is a great example of this is a, you don't even know what it does as a therapeutic drug. But what I'm really trying to say is it was discovered in 1999 and there were actually two groups who discovered it around the same time. One group called it trail and the other group called it APO2L. And guess what we call it today? Trail. Mm. And, so it matters in a way, and this is not, this happens all the time. And I think that as a result, scientists have kind of socially evolved to brand to, this is my lab. We studied this. I've seen labs have logos, trying to invest more in their websites and obviously their visuals. How am I, mm -hmm. how, how do I make it such that whenever you see a poster, you know, it came from my lab. Um, if you see a talk, you know that person is my progeny. <laughs> that person mm -hmm. has interacted with me that this is my thing. And how do I get my language to be perpetuated by other people so that people now, when they ask who studies e-selectin, they're going to say Mike King. Circling tumor cells. Like, they're going to say Brian Kirby. You want that name association. Mm -hmm. So it's sort of like citation taken to another level. Like, it's not just getting the citation. You also have to, like, play this, this sort of social branding game, recognition Well, game. yeah, they're all related. Yeah. They, they're all related into getting that citation. But again, like, everyone, people are doing the same thing. Everyone's trying to study the same thing. Like, you're not the only person in the world studying this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But you have to sort of stand out. Because yeah. you have to get funding. And funding is extremely difficult. How do you get funding? How do you get tenure? You have to stand out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that really, you can see that dynamic really playing itself out in conferences. Mm -hmm. And like, to so this is, I think, a question of the networking in general that we started talking about, which mm -hmm. is academic lineage, institutional power becomes such a thing because this is how collaborations and yeah. deals are done. And this is how networks of power become established. And so mm -hmm. in a way, it's like, 
I feel like the disorientation that I first felt as an academic scholar was in ways justified because it wasn't just that it was an unfamiliar space, but then it became so literally visible to me who was going to be publishing it and collaborating with each other and who was who is an inside and who's on the outside like there's a way that like sort of the the mean girls like uh table social hierarchy in the cafeteria actually becomes how you mix visible the way that the dynamics in your field are working because that's mm-hmm. these are going to be the people who know which editors who know who are going to collaborate with each other um mm-hmm. this has real professional consequences for people mm-hmm. oh yeah Oh, yeah, it's and it can be hard to break into that. And I, I think about my classmates and I, and I say that as a way to try to control for the institutional privilege because we all came from the same school. We're just in the same department. We just have different advisors. But I found that some advisors really took it upon themselves to introduce their students to other scientists. Mm hmm. And those students do quite well. And they always had postdoc opportunities at really great labs because when they go to a conference, the advisor says, hey, meet my new student. This person's going to be great. You should work with them. And then the other people like this arrangement as well because they can say, I know Professor X. I trust their work. So any student coming from their lab is going to be great. And you see these pathways happening. And on the other end, I've also seen situations where the PI um, literally goes to the professor PI. I say that interchangeably, mm-hmm. but they go to the conference. They immediately hang out with their friends only and never introduce you to anyone. Mm. And you and just don't. And you get no advice. You get no insight. Or your professor isn't at the conference at all because they're just like they're not into that. They already have tenure and they're great, or whatever personality they may have. And they just kind of blunt bumble through these interactions they don't meet the right people they don't leave without with any promising opportunities and you know end up like they just have to they do this random walk and they might Mm -hmm. meet someone good but not with nearly the same probability that the other person with a more directed direct lineage has Mm -hmm. it's like again like high school the the cool kid things is like Mm -hmm. a huge huge aspect of it I was also going to, I wanted to bring in an anime reference, which is like, there's this uh, recurrent <laughs> thing in uh, high school anime where you talk about like wanting to be recognized by this older person because you have a crush on them. And he's like, say, notice me, senpai. And I feel like that's sort of like the aspect for junior scholars. Like you're just hoping to be recognized by the right people and being able to take into the right social group. So, you know, you'll be able to be cool slash professionally viable. Um, I'd like to also say that talking to some friends in my field, people say that they think I'm good at networking, but I don't feel like that. I also feel like it's because I've been lucky that uh, Shirley Samuels, my uh, my mm. dissertation advisor, has been really great at making connections. But also, I was very lucky that in the particular subfield I'm in, 19th century American, there is a really good established um, uh, group of Cornell people who are, uh, who are like just a couple years ahead of me in the program that were better at networking than I was. And so because of that, then I sort of mm. had a posse to be a part of. And I was very dependent on the fact that like, and that's the sort of mentoring that we tried to do in our field is that, um, yeah, that we try to look out for each other. And then that makes it make this, this seem a little bit less alienating. But also since we we're moving as a group, people knew us like as the, the Cornell Americanists, uh, even mm-hmm. when we were junior scholars. So that made it much more easy to get into spaces, but also meant a certain type of recognition, which of course is predicated upon institutional privilege. Mm. 
Yeah, and, and that's kind of interesting. Um, I was thinking of two things. One was that um, when I was talking about advice, one advice I was going to give people, or the scientist, I guess, is to not hang out with your friends the whole conference. And it's kind of interesting to hear that. I mean, I'll explain why in a second. But, yeah. you know, there are some instances where that's very advantageous. But I think that's also based on whether your other friends do know how to network and can bring you into a different space. Mm -hmm. As opposed um, to being isolated, like your Because what I've seen, what I see happen, I think is a detriment to the students, is everything in the world is terrifying. You, you see the structure, you don't know how to fit in. But rather than actually trying to do that you and your friend or series of friends just kind of huddle together and never actually engage in the com in the community. And so you leave the conference with just as much capital as you had before. And that's actually mm -hmm. not a good idea. Mm -hmm. And so if going with, if you have a pact with your friends where you're going to actually go out and meet newer people in your field, try to like meet the super people, the senior people, then that's good. But if you are just with your friends and you know, you go to every talk with them, you sit with them, and you don't actually talk to anyone else that you didn't know before, that actually doesn't help you professionally. Mm -hmm. And so it's kind of something that I would encourage people to to look out for when they are in the conference and kind of check themselves and kind of feel like, you know, why, what are you doing and is this helpful? Or like have a goal before you start the conference. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I think this gets to another aspect of the hidden culture, which I didn't realize until much later, which is like, even before you get to the conference, like people who really know this sort of stuff know to reach out to people they haven't met yet and set up lunches, mm. dinners, drinks, coffee meetings and things like that. Um, it becomes there's all, this whole hidden side that's not just about going to the uh, panels that are relevant to you to meet people, but like making those connections um, on a social level. And also I think like there's also this expectation in a lot of conferences that you're going to go out drinking late and that's one way to make connections. And mm -hmm. I don't, I don't have the energy for that personally, but so that's an aspect I find intimidating personally. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. There's a, a, a social, um, people often joke in the sciences, like, you don't, when you're networking, you actually don't talk about science. The point is that the next morning they think you're a great person and they want to work with you. And then after the conference, then you start talking about science. Mm -hmm. And that is true to some extent. And that can be more difficult for people who um, are early risers, <laughs> like myself, who like when 10 o'clock hits, it's like, why are we still out? I want to mm -hmm. take my bra off, like now. <laughs> and, um, or for people who are introverts or people who like have don't have the energy like or just you know need to take a break and mm -hmm. that or, that can be challenging and it's also since a lot of that revolves around alcohol of course it's difficult for people who don't drink yeah. for personal or religious region reasons mm -hmm. like a lot of it's bar culture at that point mhm mm mhm and the way to to compensate for that would be to actually have meetings with people beforehand and um, the other thing I try to remember that has been useful for me to this regard is that I am not the only person who doesn't like the bar scene. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of helpful to undo the narrative that the only way to network is to do the bar scene. Because sometimes when I say these things out loud, people will also say, yeah, that's not really me either. And I try to opt for places 
So rather than going to the bar, I may say like going to a dinner because I can do a dinner. I can do like a private, like a nice dinner in a formal setting. Um, and trying to arrange social outings that are in environments that I'm more comfortable in allow me to stay out longer than I would have normally. Mm-hmm. And then trying to find like-minded people because not everyone is actually like that. But if you go into their thinking they are and not trying to find them, it, that can be a challenge. Yeah, it could sort of increase the alienation. Yeah, I, it can. I was also going to say that I think it's so appreciated when senior scholars um, make the effort to talk to junior scholars, but also when they're the ones who say that, like, I'm going to pay for coffee, I'm going to pay mm. for the meal. Like, I think there was a, this push on Twitter early, early this year or last year that was, like, pointing out, like, hey, senior scholars – buy a meal or buy a coffee for a junior scholar for a graduate student or for an adjunct you know like this sort mm-hmm. of like little way to pay it forward and to try and like um undo some of the asymmetries um mm-hmm. in the system that we know is not based on merit mm. <laughs> um and like it's not just about yeah. like making connections but also like the sort of like this little human recognition which can go a long way and yeah. so i'm really thankful for the senior scholars who've done that for me and i hope to pass that on as well yeah, and I I feel proud. I do feel fortunate in this because in my it is never in my experience, and because of my experience, I do not expect to pay for my meal if I'm at a conference and my and a professor is there, um, and we're having dinner together. Like I I've so that kind of thing, and also the conference the kind of conference that I've been to will have spaces where they have open bar. And so I will just get drinks while there's an open bar. And then when it switches to not open bar, I'm like, well, I, you know, like I know, I understand that's on my own tab or um, food and travel are covered in the conference or like when I get reimbursed, I can reimburse for food as well. And so um, I think that that changes the conversation in a way that I may have been invisible to how like that might've been a barrier because it hasn't been for me. And I, and for many conferences that I go to, people get per diems for mm. the conferences. So like, so registration, travel, lodging, but food is also considered in that. And then if you're going out, typically like the oldest person there, the most senior person like might pay for your meal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think this also gets to, uh, um, to transition slightly like, there's also like now, of course, the social media sphere that we've been talking about navigating the physical space of the conference, but I think social media has added this whole other dynamic mm. to it. Mm-hmm. Um, for example, I think that, again, like things like Facebook become, make it very clear, like who knows who, like sometimes like you might get like some scholars that you might only kind of know, like pop up as your recommended feeds and it sort of like oh, shows the way you become more and more intermeshed into certain circles or closer proximity to, um, to people at different levels. So you use I think it's, social media for um, professional, meeting professional people too, like Facebook? Some Sometimes, yeah. Like I feel, I don't add people on Facebook unless I've, I've met them usually, unless I've had an introduction. But I think that there's also this interesting aspect that through social media, like because people are meeting up with their friends, which is a part of the conference that we should also talk about, people will post selfies with their group friends. And then that's also mm. the way that you immediately see and make it makes visible say like, um, who the cool kids are that work on a particular field or mm. um, a particular generation from a particular institution. And it sort of like makes that visible, but also sometimes it becomes a bit uncomfortable because it's like 
on one hand, it's just because you're friends, but on the other hand, it also shows like this person knows this person and they're part of this group. Yeah. Um, That's interesting, which... but probably also why I hate posting pictures. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's okay. I could post the photos for us. And also like Twitter for me, since I am an introvert, I find it's easier for me to interact with people I haven't met using the conference hashtag. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's easier for me to build connections that way as opposed to just going up to someone without ever talking to before and saying hello. Yeah, I, I was, we were just talking earlier that um, if you are at a conference alone, it might be a good idea to look up the hashtag because people who are on social media already and are tweeting about the conference might be more likely to accept a coffee invitation than mm-hmm. just, so increasing your chance of having a positive response because they're already putting themselves out there. You can mm-hmm. already start a conversation. It's been interesting because um, the conference I've been to so far, not a lot of people don't even use like Twitter as an example. And so I very quickly find out like who the so- other social media people are, like who believes in Twitter. And I find them, mm-hmm. you know, like we, we sometimes you have conversations amongst ourselves. But um, in terms of, I used to try to live tweet conferences and now I don't do that so much because there's just not like a really a big pull behind that. But it's, it's always interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think in the humanities, or at least in the fields that I am, um, the live tweeting is quite, uh, is, is, is a pretty decent, like, it's not like everyone tweets, but like, there's a, a, enough of a population that um, I feel like I'm able to meet a lot of people that I wouldn't otherwise uh, through those circumstances. I also feel like it allows me to s- establish and maintain relationships in a way with people, uh, like scholars at other institutions after the fact, and really in ways that feel more natural. Um, and I feel like just seeing each other's posts becomes a more organic and more more passive way of getting a feel for what people are like as personalities. And I'm personally, I'm thrilled when people come up to me like, oh, yeah, we follow each other on Twitter. And then it feels mm. like I feel a little bit more comfortable or like, yeah. yeah, I saw you tweet about this. Like I had this um, one friend who was like, oh, yeah, I see you post about lifting and doing deadlifts all the time. And it's awesome. And I was like, yeah, <laughs> talk about lifting weights together. That's so cool. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. So that makes it a little bit less intimidating. Uh, but yeah, being in the know is such a huge part of of the conference. That's not just about getting the information from the poster or from the panel. It's also about navigating these sort of uncertain waters of of the of the social dynamics, mm-hmm. which lead to real like professional opportunities. Um, yeah. yeah, yeah. And I can't tell you how how um, I'm starting to transition in some ways. So there are some conferences like. I'm like, oh my God, I know you. And like, we just automatically like, let's hang out. We're totally hanging out. And, you know, in other circumstances where I'm like, I want to go home at 10. It's like, no, we need to talk and catch up on life. And then we mm-hmm. start talking about the papers that we're writing and like, oh, we should read this. And like, what are our hopes and dreams? And like, what are we going to do? And like, why does academia suck? And you just get to do, like, you get to commiserate together. Yeah. And it's kind of like really cool if like, you know, people there. I haven't gotten to the point where other people know me that I don't already know, and I'm okay with that, actually. Mm-hmm. But it's really interesting to see that transition. Yeah, and so I feel this is also getting to this other aspect of conferences, which is because academia scatters us everywhere, sometimes mm-hmm. that's the only way you're going to see your friends. Like yeah. now, because post-graduation, there's some friends I'm only going to see at most once a year because we go to a conference together. Mm-hmm. So it also just becomes like on this basic human level, retaining connections to to people that you know, used to see all the time and now you're on in different countries. Yeah. That being said, I think it, um, because we, 
because it becomes like very personal, it like it sometimes is easy then to forget that you're more comfortable than when you're early in your career and that the barrier mm-hmm. to participation mm-hmm. is still really high for a lot of people, even though for you it's become just not just professional, but seeing friends, but it's so easy outside, to forget that. Yeah. Yeah. But on the outside it's also again, institutional privilege and professional opportunities that you don't, aren't even thinking about. Like you don't realize when like your friend group has now become a, like a posse or a clique in a that way. someone else is going to look at and then say, yes. Oh, how do I get into that? Yeah. And then, you know, I guess on that end, it makes sense is like why it's so hard to get into that. Because if, if my posse is essentially a group of people I've known for five years, and this is our one opportunity to finally talk and be in the same space after not being in the same space for years, then that, like, I don't want to have the, oh, let's introduce conversation. I'm really trying to have the, so how's your daughter kind of conversation, right? And that's mm-hmm. not the same kind of conversation that someone can jump into. Um, but so it's interesting. And I think moving forward, it's important the one thing I try to take back from this is to make time to have both of those conversations. So to have the, okay, um, we need to catch up with my friends. We're going to do that conversation and we're definitely going to do that. But while I'm being present at this conference, I'm going to try to be present at the conference. And if someone does walk up to me, I'm going to try to disengage and actually invite them in because I, because I want to make sure they have access. Mm-hmm. Cause now so you're I think the cool kids. And trying to be more conscious of that, I think, would be helpful for everyone. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> yeah, I, I think that's a really great point. Um, I think so. Another point that we sort of mentioned it has to do with like costs. So on the one hand, like you can get reimbursed, but say in my field, it's typical in departments that I think as maybe it's different when you become faculty, since mm-hmm. I don't know about that yet. But usually you have funding for just one conference a year mm-hmm. at most. And so then you have to sort of figure out how to make ends meet. And like some Do they cover food because, as well? Uh, not necessarily. Like, okay. Because, um, for example, uh, I had about a thousand Canadian to cover me at max, um, mm-hmm. which meant that that on, that covered part of my travel costs and hotel costs. So that mm-hmm. means that it didn't cover all of that. It didn't cover my uh, conference fees. It didn't cover cost of food and things like that. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. And then, of course, there's some conferences that might have funding for grad students or junior scholars, mm-hmm. but that's not typical um, across all fields. And so, for example, for me, like doing four conferences this year means um, very careful budgeting um, mm-hmm. in order to make sure that I could just afford and use that money strategically. Um, and then I think that's another with institutional privilege becomes very apparent, like which departments are you in or which schools are you in that can maybe give a little bit more funding or um, maybe uh, you're in a postdoc that has, say, a research grant portion for conferences or travel uh, grant mm-hmm. portion. Yeah. And then, so what would you say to someone with the situation about how to choose the conferences or how did you try to budget for this? Oh, that's, that's really tricky. I feel like I'm still sort of trying to figure that out because... I don't think it's something people really talk about. Um, I think like this is another way that the informal network has become so important because like trying to share the space with as many people as possible is a way to to offset that. Um, been sharing sharing beds with people, things like that. Mm. Uh, trying to see if you know people in the area just so you can stay with them. Mm. I think that there's all these like ways that you have to be 
thinking not just about your professional dynamic, but like, how do you make it cost effective for you? Like another thing, for example, that I think makes a huge difference is like whether or not you have the money to stay in the conference hotel, because usually that's much more expensive than if you were going to go to the cheaper hotels or do an Mm -hmm. Airbnb or stay with a friend. Because on the one hand, that means that you're more likely to meet people. You're going to be more connected. It's going to be easier for you to go to the very early and very late panels. But like the cost is a very little monetary cost. Um, So you have to sort of weigh the pros and cons for yourself. Yeah. And also I think, sorry, and another aspect is also speaking as someone who does American studies and American literature, but is Canadian, like another thing to bear in mind for me is like most of my professional conferences are in the U.S. So it's always going to cost me more uh, to travel. And also because of the exchange rate, it's also going to cost me more. Mm. Uh, Yeah, that's very difficult. Um, the last year, um, I wanted to give a presentation, but my advisor said he had no money. And also it was this really awkward spot where I, I was a student in absence because my advisor didn't want to pay tuition for me my last semester. Uh. So basically I couldn't get a graduate student travel award from their graduate school. Mm-hmm. So I had to pay for everything out of pocket. And so one... I knew people who were going and I slept on their floor mm-hmm. in their hotel because they were getting me in Berks. They didn't care. And then I tried to, um, tried to get awards from the conference itself. Yeah. I really tried to minimize everything. I, Oh, and then I got out of, I paid for one day registration, not the whole day. And just kind of banked on them not ever checking my badge and just kind of walking in with confidence, which actually worked. I'm not going to say which conference in case they look at this again. (laughs) But um, it it helped, too, that the school's um, booth was nearby. So I would just walk straight to the booth. Like, that's what I'm doing. Yeah, but I, I tried to do lots of volunteering things to get, like, any kind of reimbursement that I could if you volunteer to work for the conference for a day, they sometimes offer a reduction in the registration. My school had a booth, and so I worked at the booth to get some discount. But yeah, it was quite challenging to think of how to plan for all of that. And, um, and I really had to balance what is this conference going to do for me? How much mm-hmm. do I really want to go to this conference? And I wanted to have a talk on my CV that says I gave a talk about this. So it was important for that. And I like, okay, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. Even though and I wasn't I guess, getting paid. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think it's sort of the funny, like, again, disparity that say, like I knew some people who to save money um, didn't go out to eat and they like bought, uh, they just brought a loaf of bread and peanut butter. And like, that's yeah. one way to keep costs low. But then that means like, you're missing out on networking opportunities because right. you can't afford to go or like, again, the conference hotel. It's also funny that like, even though junior scholars on non-tenure track people have the most to lose, most to lose and gain from these connections, like we're the least likely to have any sort of like grant or institutional support. Right. Uh, um, right. And that the faculty members who are being paid a lot more are the ones that are going to get like be have a per diem, but we won't. Yeah, and they're also the ones that travel all the time and charge it all to their grants. Yeah. Yeah. Well, in the science they Like, that's how any reimbursement happens. It's not from the department itself. It's from the 
PI, the professor's own research grant. So that what that also means is that if they don't have a lot of money, you're not going to conferences. So I would have friends from one lab where their PI just had a ton of money. So it was like they could go to whatever conference they wanted to with little justification. I mean, justification, but it wasn't like, like, it's like, I want to go. And then they would go. Even to some that were overseas, actually. Wow. And then I had other PIs who, and other friends who, like, weren't getting food reimbursement because... They, they just enacted this new rule because, like, we don't, like, okay, I have six students. They want to go to this conference. I don't have enough money to have all of you go. So, like, you're picking and choosing who gets to go that year, and then you're deciding who gets to have food and, like, what food you can have. So, yeah, it. so I guess it's kind of interesting to talk about things like systemic or the department does things versus, like, everything is based on – not even the school, not even the department, but who do you, but what professor do you work for mm-hmm. and how much money do they have? And then that also means when, because sometimes they have money and then two years later they could have absolutely no money and then they have no funding for people to go anywhere. I've seen this. I mean, it happens uh-huh. all the time. Yeah. It's like, it's, it's very so... temporal, temporal, sorry. Yeah. Like it's, it's so not, has to. it's just so interesting, like the in- interdependency that we don't really think about or maybe people don't talk about uh, very readily yeah but no Um, one's guaranteed the funding and when I think about when I say things like I've always had the advisors pay for things when you get to the conference they they do have socials built in that have those the food and the alcohol so they there are like meals that are already paid for and then I tried to make sure that I'm around people who have money. <laughs> like I try to talk, like sometimes it's my own professor. And I guess that is, a, I've been fortunate that way. If I'm at the same conference he's at, I will actually say, so we're going to go to a steakhouse, right? <laughs> Cause I know he's paying. And like, he also knows that's why I'm asking, you know, like it's a contract. He's done this enough times. I know, but in other times I'm trying to like, Oh, like here's someone that I know. And then I know their advisor does this. And I'm like going to be like the plus one that goes along. So I try to tag along with other people to get into these other spheres, these other social networks. Mm-hmm. So that's like, that's also like how I navigate conferences and things that I do that I am also aware that people may not be as comfortable doing. And the only reason I'm, I've just been doing it for so long, you know, since, a, since I was a freshman in undergrad, just going to conferences by myself, like you have to do that. Mm-hmm. but it's difficult so what about wardrobe oh yeah this is another <laughs> interesting and notable difference so for me like i feel like this is another hidden cost like i think in the humanities you have it's sort of expected that you're supposed to dress in a way that i described to liz as class drag which mm-hmm. is that you're we're supposed to like all sort of dress in a similar way that indicates that we're of a social class that, especially when you're a junior scholar, you may not be a part of at all, mm. um, especially since stipends tend to be so different. But nonetheless, like, you know, you have to maintain a certain veneer of, like, what's expected with a veneer of professionalism has to do with performing a certain type of uh, class uh, affiliation through, like, wearing a blazer or wearing a scarf um, or mm. other things like that. Um, and it seems like the, the formality is more in the humanities. I also think that it's interesting for me that the extent to which you can deviate in terms of either casual casualness or uh, personal style 
very much depends not just on like race and gender but also rank and sometimes even subfield for example uh, yeah. In queer th- yeah like for example in queer theory it's like more acceptable for you to dress in ways that are not just like a completely boring suit because like that's also maybe a signature of the field or like after people get tenure then you can like wear more exciting clothes mm-hmm. because you don't have to worry about uh performing a certain persona in public yeah. in the same way yeah um and so for me like one piece of advice like uh, i give to my mentees is like it's like okay make sure that you really pay attention to sales for like Ann Taylor Loft or J. Crew or things like that. Or like one of my things was like, okay, J. Crew is way too expensive even on sale. But if you go in and you try on the thing, you could probably find like a cheaper one on eBay. <laughs> but you know what size True. you are. So True. that's one thing I've done. Yeah. Yeah, I, um, I shop at Target. I've gotten mm. my clothes from Target. Um, I think... Yeah, I'm definitely a bargain sharp shopper. My the talk that I my TED Talk outfit, I think that dress I've had it for years. I think it cost me ten dollars. Nice, that's um, right in her. But I think I'm not sure. So would you say that what I wore for my TED Talk would be something that would be acceptable at a conference that you've attended? Is it too much color? Yeah. Um, I think it's it's acceptable because like I feel like if you do wear color, you have to sort of mute it by having a neutral blazer, and that's what you did okay yeah okay i, I also so people, feel like there's this yeah what? sorry like a savvy way of like like one of my favorite conference dresses that i had for i don't know over six years was an h&m dress which was super mm-hmm. affordable but it's like also about like being able to say go to forever 21 or h&m or like the cheaper places fast fashion and like being able to discern which things you can make like, acceptable for mm-hmm. for the environment like okay this is going to wear well i'm not gonna have to iron this this looks acceptable enough that I could pair it with other things that will dress it up. Um. Yeah. Yeah. And I've seen people dress in a wide range of things. And I think what it all comes, (laughs) what it all comes down to, if you're a research, if you're really, 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 really good, you can kind of dress how you want. (laughs) And, um, yeah, more or less. Or, like, if you're from California, sometimes they tend to wear, like, shorts, the Cali schools. So there's different reputations for different places. But um, I've seen a wide range of people's clothing. What I have noticed is that women get judged a lot for their clothing a lot more. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I won't try to rationalize it, but it's just kind of like you have to make sure that you're dressed if you want to dress fashionable, like you also have to make sure you don't dress um, too sexy. Oh yes, like that. Like, uh, so Rachel, you... uh, did you see that one funny video about woman who work um, with what's her name? She does Crazy Ex Girlfriend, and this one thing she says is like, "How much boob is too much boob?" Is like the slogan of professional women. That is true. You have yeah. to make sure. So one, if you're wearing really high heels, I think that's really looked down upon. Um, so some of them can, like, if they look like stripper heels, one thing. But I think the other thing I'm starting to notice is that people look at your clothes for a sense of practicality. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you you don't want to be the person who has to take their shoes off at the middle of the day. And so if you show up at 8 a.m. with, like, extremely high heels that you know you only have two hours of wear time in, people will view that as you being impractical, like not making a good choice. 
Yeah. It's like you have to care, but you can't care too much because that's also considered dangerous because as academics, we're not supposed to care about, you know, shallow things, quote unquote. Well, yeah. I mean, I I can sort of understand the practical point. If you want to network and you want to be around, but you need to like, you start like limping or like really hurting yourself Mm. and visibly so, it's like (laughs) just wear shorter, what are you doing? But, but they get, but the fact that you get, you get judged for that. Um, there's no, there's not a lot of sympathy for someone who wears high heels, I think. So making sure your dress isn't too short, making sure you don't have too much cleavage. Um, obviously this may get into some sort of body policing because some clothes might look good in some people and like look sexy on another person because they may have more to fill out the dress. But those are the kind of issues that I see coming up that, and the judgment comes from, the judgment is always towards a, a woman and they come from men and women, mm-hmm. right? It's not mm-hmm. like other women have more sympathy. It's kind of like you get it from from everyone. Uh, and like guys just have to invest in one suit and they could wear that every day. Or not even a conference. suit. They could just wear like a button up shirt and some khakis yeah. and a belt. They, yep. They'd be good. Yeah. But I've seen differences. And actually now I've started to play around with this. Like, I feel like if you have a blazer, it's fine. I've even wore, I wear jeans. Oh, wow. Yeah. I'll wear jeans. I think that's, that's acceptable. Usually if you're going to give the presentation, maybe not wear the jeans. But like, as soon as it's done, you can wear jeans and walk around the rest of the day. And it's still cool. Yeah. I think in the humanities, you can't, unfortunately. Another thing that also annoys me in terms of cost is like, I think that, like pantyhose is still expected. Like oh, I actually really? heard about someone huh. who, as she was walking out of an academic job interview, she heard them snark about the fact that she wasn't wearing pantyhose. Wow. wow. I know. And so like something silly like pantyhose, it's not just that like they, you know, they cost more than they should, but they rip so easily. So you need to have mm. backups. So that, mm. that personally like really annoys me. <laughs> so it's like, even though I'm trying to like save costs by buying them at Winners or Target or TJ Maxx, like I have to have a couple of backups because... These things just rip so easily. Hmm. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. And yeah, my friend didn't get a call back for that job. So. Because. <laughs> People are really petty. Yeah. Um, another aspect I want to talk about that I guess um, is more relevant to me than Liz because I was an international student in the U.S. is like travel is something that people don't talk about in the same way because crossing borders um, has is, was an issue before and is even more so now. So, for example, I know that there's a lot of uh, Canadian people at Canadian institutions who are Iranian-Canadian who can't present anymore in the U.S. Mm. Like people whose work they can't even present, um, even though they worked on it, so other people in their life have to go for them. Uh, another consideration has also been, like, since um, the MLA is our big field com- uh, conference and that's where, where job interviews happen, one year they decided to have it in Vancouver instead of the U.S., but that meant that a lot of international students who were doing their graduate work oh. in the U.S. had to get different visas. So they actually had to calculate beforehand, months in advance, that they could have their visas before they even knew if they were going to have interviews there. Hmm. So that... It's such a difficult barrier. Yeah. yeah, and there's sort of, of course, as we know, like flying nowadays has so many different pressures in terms of like body policing and interrogation yeah. and things like that so there's also i think that that hidden cost to travel that people don't talk about as much there's also been some discussion at least in the humanities about doing an academic boycott of the u.s huh uh because of the trump administration but then 
um, like, oh, we shouldn't support U.S. institutions or like U.S. space as a form of protest. But then like I do American studies, all my major conferences are in the U.S. It mm. would destroy me as a junior scholar if I didn't participate in those ways. So although I understand why people do those things, it's not exactly feasible for me. Uh, oh, sorry. Another thing I forgot about costs is also what's annoying is like when you have to pay so far in advance to get the cheaper cost before you necessarily know if you've been accepted or not. Or if you're going to interview there. Wait, paying for like buying a ticket? Uh, buying a ticket, but also conference registration. So since people, people have to, to get the cheaper rate for MLA, you have to buy it, buy it way more in advance before. Oh, you but you know may not know interviews. if you want to go, and you really want to go because of the interview. Yeah, and you won't. You're not going to get a refund if you don't end up going. Do you have to? be at the conference to go to the interview like can't you just go to the city during mla or i guess you, i guess technically i'm just said. asking i don't know um but i guess it's like it's still so so important that you should probably still go but also i think sometimes like um even when you apply to a conference sometimes you're expected to pay the registration fee before you even submit so you sort of have to front a certain amount of cost without even knowing if you're going to participate in the conference and I feel like that, that is, of course, is very difficult for junior scholars. Um, I've been organizing a panel for graduate students at the next MLA. And like one person commented, like, please, can you let me, can I submit it slightly later? Because I had to pay for a whole bunch of conferences later in the year out of pocket. So I really don't have the money for it right now. Like hmm. that also is sort of, it's not just thinking about budgeting, but like the timing of like how much money you have to put in your card at a particular time because you right. have to pay these fees in advance. Yeah, it, that sucks. That really sucks. Uh. My institution has just, and this is the first time this has ever happened, but they just initiated something where um, I they will pay directly. So they'll use the grant to directly pay for the registration and the flight. Okay. Well, so I don't have to be reimbursed for that. That's a relief. It actually, it really is. Um, it's just like space of time and you just have to like, obviously, you know, have the grant information, the money has to be there somewhere. So it's not like the department's paying for it, but they will do the paperwork beforehand. Mm -hmm. I feel like, and, yeah, that's and, also not, sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. I was going to say, that's also, that's not talked about a lot that like, even when you get reimbursed, that still means that you're in the hole for a certain amount of time. And sometimes reimbursement mm -hmm. takes a while. And that yeah. can impact you, yeah. your other regular, your rents, other bill payments. Yeah. And the interest that you pay on that money, it's a large amount of yes. money. Yeah. Again, things people don't talk about necessarily. With yeah. So why don't we end on some closing tips that we might have for people mm -hmm. who are, who have heard our conference spiel maybe feeling a lot of different ways about all the information we've given them about our experiences with conferences. Mm -hmm. um, know your limits. I think that uh, one thing that also didn't get talked about is like, if you're a person with say chronic illness or, um, you know, say like you have to travel with kids or things like that, like you don't have to participate in everything. And this is something I sort of had to accept for myself. Mm -hmm. Like I only have energy for so much. So I sort of have to forgive myself that I can't go for every panel every day, um, which I feel some people have the energy for, but I just don't. Like I know that I don't have the energy to 
do the late night drinking scene that is often really useful for networking and be able to do you know the next morning like I just can't do that so these are things I just sort of accept about my limits mm-hmm. um, making sure that you can check for accessibility and like I think that even checking if you're you're a single parent or a parent that has to travel with children like checking to see if the conference has uh, childcare and things like that or something to bear in mind before you go unfortunately it's not like uniform so people still are going to be un, unjustly impacted by these things, but uh-huh. bear these things in mind that your conference experience is not going to be the same as everyone else's conference experience. And that's okay. But also to, you have to try and figure out how to compensate in that in other ways. Yeah. And the same for conferencing is a very unnatural event. Like the fact that you just have all these hundreds of people or however many people in your space and being forced to have this kind of conversation that oftentimes don't really follow a natural flow of conversation. They often just kind of end sporadically and they move on to the next. It's like speed speed dating, but for seven days. Mm, yeah. So if you, so the other thing is it's okay to want some time alone to recenter yourself. Mm-hmm. And, and like yep. you should feel comfortable taking that. Whether that means you have to miss a session. So again, even if, like Zion was mentioning for, you know, if you have a, a, a chronic illness, but even if you just, like, I need a break, I need a moment. And I'll also add that there have been times where I've taken a break just because it was a social opportunity. So there were people there who were like, um, this one example I'll bring up is um, there's a guy who got a PhD, his PhD in mold biology, and we were in Arizona, and he said, hey, do you want to come with me? We're going, some friends and I are going to go hiking in the, in the desert. And I was like, yeah, I will do that. Because when am I going to be around someone like this ever again? And, mm-hmm. and mind you, we also talked about science. He was a scientist that I had been trying to get to talk to anyway. But I left the meeting just to go hiking and also learn about what he had to offer. And also, like, he was, like, a really great expert in the field. And so if there are opportunities to... to don't feel like you have to be in every session, especially if there's a, you need it to take that break to kind of recenter so you can be present in other spaces or if there's a social opportunity to interact with other people or with family. Right, Zion? Yes, yes. Because I think that we've been talking so much about the professional aspect, but also there's a the thing that like with conferences, you're going to get to visit so many places that you're not going to be able to either justify or afford to go anyway. Mm-hmm. So you may as well take advantage of that. Like make sure... You might want to give yourself a couple extra days to connect with friends you ha- or family you haven't seen in a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, experience things around that area, around the city. Like remember that you know, as much as we're saying like, oh, you have to network and be savvy in these ways. Like you're also a, a full human being, and yeah. try to make that space for yourself as well. I like eating. <laughs> I love looking at stuff on Yelp and figuring out like which ice cream places I'm going to hit. Mm-hmm. That's my thing. <laughs> yeah. And email those people beforehand, see if you can make those connections. There are some people who weren't even going to the conference that I was going to, but I knew that they lived in that city. And I was like, hey, can we have dinner one night? And that was also a great way for me to disconnect when I needed to recenter. And that was awesome. If you, it's a good thing to check your conference and see if they have like breakfasts or receptions that are designed for um, minority groups. So sometimes they may be like a women or LGBT or person of color um, event, and you might want to check those out to see if they have a breakfast or reception and try to get into that because that can be a great way to meet people 
Mm-hmm. And it would really and suck for you to be at the conference and not realize that this existed. <laughs> yeah, especially if, again, like, um, we've been talking about this in very general terms, but of course, like, since the conference is a microcosm of academia, it's usually a place that, you know, is probably not a majority of people of color or, or women or, mm-hmm. you know, LGBT people. So, and of course, that becomes alienating for you on a whole nother level, as well as the, the regular level of just being a junior scholar in the space. So do try to, if those are, those opportunities exist, do try to take advantage of them, um, to, both for your for your own sanity, for your own well-being, and also so, you know, you can meet more c- cool people who are probably also feeling slightly alienated and yeah. want to make friends. Yeah, and the last thing for me is, um, if possible, try to use your advisor or find some other senior person in your field or another friend and, you know, tell them before the conference, hey, I, I have a goal. I'd like to meet new people. Can you help me? Can you introduce me to people? And that way, when they already know beforehand, when you're in a social environment, if they remember, and hopefully they should, they can say, oh, by the way, this is Liz to help you introduce. So kind of have a goal that you have in mind and try to do that before the conference starts because once the conference hits, you may forget everything. But if you mm-hmm. at least had thought about it at some point, it'll be helpful for you. And you'll mm-hmm. you'll leave it feel, feeling like you actually accomplished something and it was worthwhile to you. Mm-hmm. And even if you don't have a senior person you can reach out to, even if you have a colleague, um, just think about if you even if you just move it as in a group of two, you could sort of like swap who even if you're both introverted swap who's going to be the on person and introduce the other and like mm-hmm. you help to sort of distribute um i don't know like the social interaction or like exactly. the stress yeah. of meeting new people yeah 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 wow that was a very long session but i feel i wish that i had known a lot of these things like this only comes out of like years later of <laughs> meditating on like just trying to observe and like feeling a lot of learning you know, yeah well we hope you got something from all the advice we just shared it was really great to record it made me reflect on things i hadn't really thought about before um i feel really lucky and privileged actually and so i hope some of this information can be useful to you what do you think zine yeah i mean i think it was really exciting to talk (laughs) about it because well i feel like what we truly tried to get at, at this episode is like as another aspect of the advice about conference going that you don't quite get, like, you know, you get a lot of things about like, mm-hmm. you know, should you attend places, taking notes and things like that. But we truly tried to reflect on what our experiences have been like as junior people, especially when you first walk into the space of the right, conference where right. you may not know anyone and you don't really yeah. know your friends. And I think when I thought about it, a lot of my personality kind of came through I have always been someone who just walks up to new people, and I think that has some, in some ways made the conference easier, but if that's not the kind of person you are, still have no fear. You know, <laughs> Zion's pointing at herself, and, and then you, that's when you get the try. You could be like me. So anyway, <laughs> this is it for our session. If you haven't already, please follow us at PhD This Podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and SoundCloud. If you have any questions as follow-up or comments about our our episode on conferences, we would love to hear from you. So please email us at phdvispodcast at gmail.com. That is phdvispodcast at gmail.com. And you might see your question answered on the show. 